Well, if you have a Bible there with you, if you want to turn to Psalm 52, that's our our sermon text today, Psalm number 52. And this is our custom here, out of respect for the Word of God, I'll ask if you're able to do so that you stand for the reading of God's Word today. Psalm 52, to the choir master, a maskil of David, when Doeg the Edomite came and told Saul, David has come to the house of Ahimelech. Why do you boast of evil, O mighty man? The steadfast love of God endures all the day. Your tongue plots destruction like a sharp razor, you worker of deceit. You love evil more than good, and lying more than speaking what is right. You love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue. But God will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. The righteous shall see and fear and shall laugh at him, saying, See the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. I will thank you forever because you have done it. I will wait for your name, for it is good in the presence of the godly. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's go to him and ask him to bless his word to us uh, again today. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you reveal yourself to us by it, that you reveal to us the way of salvation through faith in Christ. You reveal your will to us for how you would have us to live. You even teach us how to pray and all these things. And we know that we don't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. And so we ask that you would be our teacher this morning, that you would work in us by your Holy Spirit, and give us once again eyes to see and ears to hear great things from your word. For it's in Christ's name and for his glory that we pray. Amen. Well, uh, we've been going through on the first Sundays of the month uh, in order the Psalms, and we're up to Psalm 52 uh, last time we looked at Psalm 51, a very, a much more familiar psalm probably to many of you than this one. Certainly, it is more familiar to me than Psalm 52. Uh, and if you're if you're familiar with Psalm 51, you know that what what's going on in Psalm 51. It's a great penitential psalm of David where he's confessing his his sins, his uh, transgressions to God in the, the sin of, of adultery with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband. And he's asking God for forgiveness. And so in the previous psalm, he's, he's lamenting his own sin and seeking forgiveness for it and deliverance from that on the basis of the steadfast love of God. Verse 1. Well, here in Psalm 52, the very next psalm, uh, we see something similar but a little bit different. Here, David isn't so much grieved and vexed by his own sins. He's grieved and vexed by the sins the wickedness of someone else, of his enemy, even of what it says there in the superscription, Doeg, the Edomite. So now, rather than seeking deliverance and forgiveness for his own sins uh, from the steadfast love of God, now he looks to the steadfast love of God to deliver him, in a sense, from the sins of someone else against him and against God's people. Now, the, the account you know, that's briefly mentioned in the superscription above the, the psalm Uh, The account of Doeg's wicked acts against God's people are found back all the way back in 1 Samuel chapters 21 
and 22. I'll try to boil it down and give you the Reader's Digest uh, version of what happened there. But back then, David's still on the run from King Saul. And King Saul wants to kill David. This isn't any light matter. He's, he's still chasing him down, trying to find him. And David is literally on the run. In these chapters, David actually goes from this, this town of Nob, where Ahimelech is, to, the, to the, the land of the Philistines. I mean, that's how far David has to try to go uh, to get away from Saul. He's, he figures the last place Saul would dare look for me is in Gath, Goliath's city, you know, the city of the Philistines. Uh, if you remember, the, one of my favorite uh, humorous lines in Scripture is found in that text where uh, the king of, of the Philistines, you know, David gets there, they recognize him, and of course, he's their chief enemy, And so what do you think they're probably going to try to do to him? Well, David acts, David feigns madness. He's like drooling on his beard, scratching on doors. And the king says, uh, do I lack madmen? <laughs> am I running short on crazy people that you bring this man to me? And of course, David gets away in God's providence. But uh, that's, that's how far, that's how serious it was for David on this, in, in this thing with, with King Saul. And so Saul's trying to kill him. David's on the run. Well, you know, sometimes when you're on the run, you don't have time to pack everything. David doesn't have any food. He doesn't even have a weapon, if you can imagine that. And so he goes to the city of Nob, the, the city of the priests. He went to Ahimelech, the priest, to ask for help. He asked for food. And what does Ahimelech tell him? There's no common bread. In other words, there's no regular bread. The only bread we have is the holy bread, the bread of the presence that was set aside for for the Lord, the holy bread, 1 Samuel 21, 4. And so normally that was reserved for the Lord. It was on a table inside the, the house of God there. And it was also part of the priest's portion. Just like they often got parts of the sacrifices, that, that bread was part of the priest's allotment. So it's, it was no small thing for Ahimelech to give everything he had to David. He was giving up part of his own food and that which was holy unto the Lord. You might remember in the Gospels in Matthew and Mark, Jesus actually refers to this account and refers to David eating that holy bread in Matthew 12, verses 1 to 8, it says this, At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. You know, they're always looking, they're always trying to find fault with Jesus and his followers. He said to them, Have you not read... Of course they had read, but he says, have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. In other words, this wasn't just for anybody to have. This wasn't like potluck bread. This was just for, for the Lord and for the priests. And he says, or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath... The priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless. In other words, like what I'm doing now, they worked. The Sabbath, they're not supposed to work. Well, somebody worked. The people in the temple worked. The priests worked every Sabbath. And he uses the word, they profane it. And they, they worked their tails off. Now, they, they didn't just work. They really worked. And yet he says they are blameless. In other words, you're not thinking about the Sabbath correctly here. Sure, it's a commandment, but you've got the whole thing backwards. He says, I tell you something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what it means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. I mean, imagine him saying that. It's not the, not the topic of our sermon this morning, but Jesus says, you know, 
It's my Sabbath. Just like when he cleared the temple, my house. You know, you, you think you're going to tell me what to do on my day. It's my day. It's my law. I'll tell you what's right and what's wrong. And, and they had it wrong. So he actually refers back to King David eating the, the bread of presence and taking some of it to his men and refers to this account uh, that we're looking at now. Well, concerning the, the wicked actions of Doeg, the Edomite, and opposing God's anointed king, David, uh, it's not kind of hard to imagine, I think, that the Lord Jesus Christ in that in quoting it, he may have actually been likening the hateful opposition of the Pharisees to that of Doeg. Because who was Doeg opposing? God's anointed. God's anointed really wasn't Saul anymore. It was David. And yet he was so hateful, so spiteful of David, and so enslaved to service uh, to King Saul for his, own, for his own selfish ends that he even, I mean, he, he kind of ratted out David to Saul, as we're going to see. And in the same way, the Pharisees were always looking to accuse Jesus Christ, the, the, the ultimate anointed one of God, the Messiah of God. Well, Ahimelech, in 1 Samuel 21, he, what does he do? Does he say, you know, David, this bread's not really for you. I know you're the anointed king and everything, but it's supposed to be for the priest. It's supposed to be for God. No, he gives it to him. Ahimelech was right, and they were wrong. Ahimelech had the right view of it. He gave him the bread. He gave him uh, the, the sword of Goliath. I mean, it's kind of funny. David goes to the, the city of priests. You know, it's not, not an armory. This is, there's no barracks here. And he asks, do you have any weapons? You know, you can almost imagine Ahimelech kind of scratching his head and saying, you know what city you're in, right? You know, this isn't Jerusalem. This isn't an outpost. This is the house of God. And he says, we do have one, and you might, you might recognize it. It's the one, it's Goliath's sword, rather large sword. And it was, it was covered with a, uh, covered up. And so he gave him that. He gave him bread um, to help him. But there's one problem. 1 Samuel 21.7 says this. It says, now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, Detained before the Lord, his name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. Now notice it says he was detained before the Lord. It's not an accident that Doeg was there, right? We don't know why he was delayed. We don't know why he happened to still be there. Maybe he was supposed to leave, but he wasn't. He was there. And he was there to see the whole thing, this whole transaction between David and Ahimelech. He saw it. Notice how it describes Doeg. He was uh, of the servants of whom? Saul. Not only that, he was the chief of Saul's herdsmen. This is someone Saul probably knew by name, one of his main servants. And the text says something that may sound odd to us. It calls him an Edomite. An Edomite. What's an Edomite? It's it's, it's someone from the... the, the, uh, from the offspring of Esau, Jacob's brother. And, and all through the Old Testament, the Edomites, Esau's posterity, and the sons of Jacob, that is Israel, kind of were always butting heads. They were always, he was always being a trouble to Israel. And so when the writer, when First Samuel's writer says he's an Edomite, that's supposed to be a hint. He's telling us this is a guy who always gave God's people. His, his family line has always given God's people trouble, and it's no, no different here in our text, he, he shared the animosity of, towards Jacob's posterity that Esau shared, had towards his brother many times, Jacob. Well, in, in chapter 22 of 1 Samuel, uh, we find out that Saul heard that David had been found and not caught. You know, as far as Saul, Saul is concerned, if you saw David, 
your next order of business was to stop him, hold him, let someone know, do something so I can come and kill him. Now, Saul was quite paranoid. And also, you have to remember, he was willfully forgetting that the Lord had anointed David as king. The Lord had chosen him now over Saul himself. And so God was going to look out for David. Saul seems to be kind of oblivious to that in his blind hatred of, of, of really, even of the Lord. I mean, Saul really despised the Lord. He despised the Lord's word by his actions earlier in the book when God rejected him for that. Um, and so what does he do? Saul starts accusing people of treason. You're, you're all kind of plotting against me. You're all, you're all committing treason against me. You're getting together. You're plotting. There's, David's not just getting away randomly. There's an enemy in the camp. There's someone. There's a conspiracy against me. Someone's out to get me, he says. And then he also goes the other way and says, you know, is David going to reward you with, you know, with money and, and fame and flocks? And, you know, I'm, I'm the king. I'm still the king here. If you want rewards, I'm the one that you should be serving. It's really what he was saying to them. It was then that Doeg saw his opportunity. You know, you can see that he wasn't a godly man for a lot of reasons. But, you know, if Doeg really wanted to serve Saul just to serve Saul, why didn't he tell him before? Why does he wait for Saul to mention reward? But he saw his opportunity for advancement and profit. And so he tells Saul that he saw, he calls him the same thing Saul called him, not David, the son of Jesse. It's kind of a put down. It's almost like calling him a kid, you know, this offspring of Jesse. I don't even want to, he doesn't even want to use his name. He hates him so much. He calls him the son of Jesse. He saw that he tells, he tells him, I saw him come to Nob, and I even saw Ahimelech helping him. He doesn't just rat out David, he rats out the priest to, to Saul. He tells him that Ahimelech helped him by inquiring of the Lord for him, by giving him food, even giving him the weapon, the sword of Goliath. Now, when Doeg said these words to, to Saul, what do you think he knew was going to happen to Ahimelech? He was signing Ahimelech's death warrant. He knew that's what was going to happen. He knew Saul would have him put to death. And so in this psalm that we're looking at this morning, that's why David in verse 2 talks about Doeg's tongue plotting destruction and of him loving words, quote, that devour. You know, the words all through scripture are tongues. We are warned about the danger and the damage that our tongues can do. What does James say? That, that the tongue is a fire. It can't be tamed. You know, we, we can tame horses by putting a bit in their mouths. I'm paraphrasing. But the tongue, this little, this little piece of flesh in our mouths, causes all kinds of hate and damage and destruction and even death. Now, if, as if that weren't enough, what does Saul do? Saul hears about Ahimelech. He summons Ahimelech to come stand before the king. He accuses him wrongly of having conspired against him by helping David, uh, which was the effect of what, what Doeg, you know, Doeg's account made it look like that. If you, if you read the account, we don't have time to read the whole thing uh, here this morning. Um, David, David didn't tell him, hey, I'm on the run from King Saul. He kind of tells him, I'm on an errand from King Saul, and I was in such a hurry. The, you know, the priest even says, why are you here by yourself? He, was, he knew something was wrong. He didn't know what. But as far as he was concerned, David was a servant of Saul, a faithful servant of Saul, one who had never done Saul wrong, and that's all true. And so Ahimelech, when he helped David, he wasn't trying to plot against Saul. He thought he was doing good to someone who had always done good to Saul himself. Well, Saul sentenced him to death. 
he sentenced his whole household to death. He's like, you're going to die. Your whole family is going to die for what you did to me. And then what does Saul do? Saul turns around to his guard and, and orders them, it says, to turn and kill the priests of the Lord. He's like, his, his soldiers, you guys, you know, do, get rid of these guys. Kill them all. I want you to kill them. Now, the soldiers who were godlier than he was refused to put out their hand to strike the priests of the Lord, it says. They, they had enough fear of God to say, you know, tell me to kill somebody. It's kind of my job. I'm in the military, right? That's what people in the military sometimes are made to do or, or told to do. But when, even listen to what he tells them to, you know, strike down the priests of the Lord. Well, they knew whose priests these people were. That it was the Lord's priests, and to strike their hand against the Lord's priests would be something that would not be wise to do. So they wouldn't do it. His own soldiers wouldn't do it. And yet there was one who would. And you can guess who that was. What about Doeg? The text tells us that Doeg jumped. When he said jump, he said how high he killed 85 of them. Just think about the. Try to picture that in your head. Priests, not military men, not armed men, men wearing the ephod, men that just served in the house of God, killed 85 of them with the sword, and then as if that weren't enough, he put the entire city to the sword. The entire city of priests, Nob. It says both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey and sheep, he put to the sword. 1 Samuel 22:19. One person got away. He wiped out a whole city practically. One person got away. One, only Abiathar, one of the sons of Ahimelech, escaped to tell David what had happened. It's hard, it's hard to put into words how horrific this scene was. That's the background of Psalm 52. You know, sometimes in our modern you know, day, our situation, we read psalms like this. We read psalms that have imprecatory prayers against God's, the enemies of God's people, and we, we kind of don't, we don't understand. We read it and we think, oh, that's, that can't be for today. That can't, we're uncomfortable with those kinds of prayers, praying you know, for God's vengeance upon the enemies of his people. But I'll say this, uh, in a lot of places in this world, uh, that other than here, they would read Psalm 52 and know exactly what it's talking about. And they would sympathize and they would take great comfort from psalms like this, and others as well. That's, that's the background of Psalm 52. Psalm 52 is David's response, David's godly response to Doeg's awful deeds of wickedness against God's people. Well, what are we to learn from this psalm? I, I would say there's a lot to learn for us in our day from this psalm. It has a, a message for us as God's people today. Are you and I not at times vexed and perplexed by the wickedness of the enemies of the cross of Christ in our day? Does it not trouble you when you see the way that God's people are often treated around the world? We see the prosperity of the wicked and the, the relative suffering of God's people all over the world. The persecutions are, that are even now in our day endured by our brothers and sisters in the faith all over the world. Does that not trouble you? Does that not make you wonder what is God doing sometimes? That we, we have to have our eyes kind of refocused, our eyes of faith that is. And psalms like this help us to do just that. So let's look at the psalm itself. Uh, the first thing that you're going to see in this psalm in the first four verses is David's righteous rebuke, his righteous rebuke of the boasting of the wicked. Verses 1 through 4, he says to Doeg and to all like him, he says, Why do you boast of evil, O mighty man? 
The steadfast love of God endures all the day. Your tongue plots destruction. Like a sharp razor, you worker of deceit, you love evil more than good and lying more than speaking what is right. Selah. The word selah, they think, means to pause and think, to reflect on what you're reading. It says it twice in this psalm. It says, you love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue. It's, it's, it's kind of strange maybe to us when you know the background of what, what happened. What sins does David focus on when it comes to Doeg? I know if I was writing it, and maybe if you were writing it, which thank God we weren't, we'd be writing about his violence. Well, he does write about his violence, but it's violence of his tongue. The whole thing got started by his mouth, by Doeg speaking words that devour, and which means he knew exactly what was going to happen when he said what he said. Doeg, like many workers of iniquity, both before and after him, and even in our day, were not only they're not only ashamed, or not only not ashamed. It's one thing to to sin, even in a high-handed way. I mean, sin, you know, what we think of as a big sin. And at least have the sense, the good sense to be ashamed of it. Doeg wasn't even that. He went so far beyond that, it's hard to imagine. He was boasting, bragging, glorying in his evil. That's what he was doing. He failed to look beyond his own temporal and short-lived prosperity, which he did gain prosperity from his actions. We, there's no doubt that King Saul did what he said and blessed him and, and gave him all kinds of things. But he had gotten this stuff by sin. And by wickedness, and so he boasted and gloried in what should have been his shame. Now David calls him, O mighty man. O mighty, that's kind of a hint at what Doeg had done in putting the city of Nob to the sword. Now calling him, O mighty man, is kind of a mockery of sorts. He's really mocking him. Now think about what Doeg did, and Doeg boasting in what he did. Who had Doeg killed with the sword? We don't know if he had help or what, but he killed a bunch of priests. He didn't, it wasn't a fair fight. He wasn't fighting soldiers. He wasn't fighting people that could fight back. This is what people that, that do evil things do in our day as well. They often glory in killing people that can't defend themselves. Women, children, other people, even infants, it says. So he calls him, oh, mighty man. There's no doubt that Doeg fancied himself to be this mighty warrior who had conquered a whole city and put it to the sword in, in serving King Saul. But all he did was slaughter defenseless people, unarmed priests, women, children, infants, even animals. You know, some, some brave war hero that Doeg must have fancied himself to be. Well, the word mighty man there in, in the Hebrew is the same word, the same title that came to be used of David's mighty men of valor. You know, David, David had an army when he became king. And among that army, there was a group of 30 or so people that were kind of the special forces of David's army. We, they're listed by name. Their exploits are listed by, by name in Second Samuel chapter 23. And they were called, the word, the word is gibberim. Gabor means great or, or mighty. He, he's kind of mocking uh, Doeg by calling him that, something he later called his own best troops, the mighty men of valor. He's saying, oh, you're some mighty man of valor, Doeg. Look at who you fought. Coward. That's what he's saying. Why do you boast of evil, oh, mighty man? according to your own, your own opinion. Well, he rebukes Doeg all the more and all like him who, quote, boast of evil. And he gives us a couple reasons why he rebukes him or why it was so wrong what he did. And the first one might sound kind of strange to us at first in verse 1. It sounds like a non sequitur, like it doesn't follow what he says in the first part of the verse, right? He says, 
The steadfast love of God endures all the day. Why does he say that there? Why is it, you know, why are you boasting of evil, almighty man? The steadfast love of God endures all the day. He's really what he's saying is, you know, you think that because you prospered by your wickedness, that the steadfast love of God for his people has failed. That God doesn't care, God's not watching, that the Lord is not defending his people, and that you've won. But you're wrong. The steadfast love of God endures all the day, even in the face of your wickedness and evil. That God's steadfast love endured for them yet, even in the face of that sin. Matthew Poole, the great uh, commentator, sums up what David's saying. He kind of sums it up and puts words in David's mouth, so to speak. He says, And therefore he, that is God, has permitted thee and may do others, other evil people, to rage for a season, yet he will defend and in due time deliver his people. In other words, the eyes of faith have the long view in mind. You know, if, if all we see is what's right in front of our face, you know, if we can't see past the tip of our nose, we might learn, to, we might accidentally or wrongly question God's ways and say, you know, how could God, how could a good God let this happen? And David is saying, you know, it looks awful. It is an awful thing, but God's steadfast love has not failed even in the face of that. This psalm, I think, gives you and I, I think this is the intention, it gives you and I words of instruction that we can sing and pray and meditate upon in order to help us see with the eyes of faith that despite the boasting of the wicked that happens even in our day as well, that the steadfast love of God yet endures all the day. We don't let the wicked acts in the history of, of humanity that we see tempt us or lead us to think that God's steadfast love somehow failed. It does not. God's not done yet in any way, shape, or form. Well, the second thing that David brings up in our psalm is in verses 5 through 7, and that's the judgment of God, of God, the sure and just judgment of God upon the wicked. Not only does the steadfast love of God endure forever towards his people, but the just judgment of God upon the wicked endures forever as well. Those, those two truths I think David is trying to impress upon us. In other words, God will certainly defend his church and judge Doeg and all like him who put, who put their hand out to strike the apple of God's eye. God notices. He is not uh, indifferent to the sufferings of his people. In verse 5, look at what he says to Doeg. And those like him, it's kind of a horrifying picture. He says, but God, two words that should get our attention, but God will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. And there's that word Selah again. Think about this. The, the wicked may prosper in this life for a time. They may have opportunity to boast in their shame. But what is their end going to be? should they not repent. Destruction. And at whose hands? God's. Not mine, not David's, not yours. God himself. Think about, think about what a terrifying prospect this, this is. God himself is going to do these things to Doeg and those like him. It says God himself, four times in one verse, in verse five, it's like rapid fire succession David lists these four things that God is going to do one after the next. God is going to, to do these things. It, it's kind of, if you read it, it's kind of, kind of a force of violence to it even. It's a violent picture of what God is going to do 
to Doeg, God is going to break or pull him down. God will snatch him up. God will tear him away from his dwelling. And God will uproot him from the land of the living. It's, it's, it sounds like God is going to smash him and rip him out of the ground and get rid of him. Like he's troubling the earth right now, but he's not going to stay around forever. And what's the result of that judgment of God going to be? What does the psalm say? He says in verse 6, The righteous shall see and fear and shall laugh at him. What's he saying? He's saying the righteous, God's people, will live to see his just judgment upon the enemies of Christ and his church. You and I will see it, either in this life or in the life to come. The first thing we do when we see it is going to be what? We will see it, and the first thing he says that you and I are going to do is fear. Fear. Matthew Henry writes this, God's judgments on the wicked should strike an awe upon the righteous and make them afraid of offending God and incurring his displeasure. In other words, we see that God is still a God of justice. And while we are no longer under the threat of his wrath for our sins, if you were in Christ, um, we do know that we can, we can undergo the fatherly displeasure of God for our sin if we persist in it. And we don't want to do that. So God's judgments teach us things, first and foremost. The first reaction is, is fear, a godly fear of the Lord. In other words, we're going to be reminded of what we ourselves have been saved from by the sheer mercy and grace of God. If you and I were left to ourselves, we would not be much different than the doegs of this world. We deserve nothing but wrath, condemnation, and hell. You know the saying, there before the grace of God go I. That's what the first, the first response to God's judgments on the wicked should be for us. There before the grace of God go you and go I. What's the second thing? And it must be even in this order. The second thing that the godly, the righteous will do when they see God's justice uh, poured out upon the dough eggs of this world is laugh. Fear and laugh. That doesn't sound... I don't think it's a nervous laughter. I know when I get afraid or nervous, I might laugh. It's not that kind of laughter. I don't think that's what it is. Uh, wickedness may surround, may vex God's people in this world of sin. But he's really saying that the godly, the righteous in Christ, will have the last laugh. Doeg was laughing for a time and boasting for a time, but only for a time. And it was going to be short-lived. We will one day see the just judgment of God upon the wicked, upon the enemies of Christ and his people, and we shall glorify God for his justice every bit as much as we glorify him now for his grace. You know that? One day you and I will glorify God for his justice just as much as we do now for his grace. God is not embarrassed by his justice. God is not embarrassed by his wrath upon sin or upon the condemnation of the wicked. Now the scripture certainly forbids you and I from rejoicing in the fall of our enemies. You know, it, it, it says it in no uncertain terms, Proverbs twenty four seventeen. We are not to rejoice or take joy in the fall of our enemies. And so this laughing isn't, isn't kind of a, it's not a sinful kind. It's not a vindictive sort of laugh as we might be tempted to do. It's, and why do you know that? Because it's preceded by fear. It's a, it's, a, it's a laugh that includes and is not contradicted by the fear of God. This is a laugh of triumph. This is a laugh not of vindictiveness, but of vindication and of rejoicing over God's care and steadfast love in defense of his people. In other words, 
God is going to make all the wrongs right someday. God is going to make all the wrongs and injustices of this world right one day. And that should be a cause of great comfort to us as his people living in this fallen world of sin, where we see much injustice, much sin, much wickedness. Now note the content of this laughter. In this little short psalm, David gives us a lot of information. Verse 7, he says, See, see the man, you know, behold the man who, who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. In other words, here's a lesson that he wants the godly in Christ to learn. We are to consider the end of the so-called mighty man who doesn't make God his refuge. There are lots of mighty men in this world, men that, that have power, that have influence, that have money, that have all kinds of things, and yet don't have Christ and hate him and hate his church and his people. But they make their money their refuge. They, make, they don't make who? They don't make God their refuge. But they trust in the uncertainty of riches and strengthen themselves, the King James says, strengthen themselves in wickedness. In other words, they see God not judging yet. And they harden their hearts. You know, it's the old, the mocker saying, if there's a God in heaven, you know, let him strike me with a lightning bolt right now. See, it didn't happen. God didn't strike me dead. And so what do you do? You strengthen yourself in sin, which is the worst thing you can do. That's what the unrighteous do. They say, God isn't judged yet. And rather than taking God's patience and long suffering as, as time for them to repent and turn to the Lord, they harden themselves even more in their sin. Well, the last thing we see in the psalm in verses 8 and 9 is David's praise for the steadfast love of God. Verses 8 and 9, he says, but I, he's, he's, you know, the psalms very often, the Bible very often, you know, the, you know the old saying, there's two kinds of people in this world. Well, in a lot of ways, the psalms, the very first psalm does this, but the psalms, the, the Bible in general says there's two kinds of people here. Um, and, and there's the dough eggs that God is going to judge. And then there's God's people. And he says, but I am like a green olive tree, unlike Doeg, right? In the house of God, you know, Doeg and those like him, God's going to snatch from their tent. He's he's like a green olive tree in the house of God. Remember, the house of God is where Doeg committed his his wickedness. Uh, I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. I will thank you forever because you have done it. I I will wait for your name for it is good in the presence of the godly. Think about this. This psalm begins and ends with references to the steadfast love of God in the midst of this wickedness that they had to deal with. And notice in the end of the psalm here in verses 8 and 9, what made David different from Doeg? We know from Psalm 51 it wasn't that David was perfect. Far from it. David doesn't, you know, David doesn't say what you might expect him to say. We kind of expect the contrast to be Doeg's bad, but we're good people. We're righteous people. We don't do the bad things that Doeg ever did. Uh, we, that's not what he says at all. David says, and we should take this to heart, that what truly separates the godly from the wicked at the end of the day is trusting in the steadfast love of God forever. Now, Righteousness and sanctification, all that may flow from that, certainly. But what does he trust in? The steadfast love of God in Christ. That and that alone is why David is a green olive tree in the house of his God, while the wicked instead are snatched up and torn from their tents. And so what we, we like David, verse 5, or verse, excuse me, verses 8 and 9, we can trust 
in God's steadfast love for us forever. And we should thank God for that steadfast love of God forever. Verse 9, even in our trials, even in your persecutions and afflictions, God's love and justice will not fail. And so what does David say? He speaks of waiting on the name of God, for it is good in the presence of the godly to do so. We see much injustice, much wickedness, and we can still trust in God. We can still thank God for his steadfast love. And we have to learn to wait on God's steadfast love and justice and his, his timing. You know, and think about this. this. This psalm has a lot to say for short, short nine verses that it includes. Is this, this whole message, is it not one of the great benefits that we have and the blessings of the gathered church every Sunday morning and corporate worship together on the Lord's Day? We, pre, we pray, we read, we even sing God's word together in psalms like this one. And when, when we do that, God graciously strengthens us in his grace, makes us grow in our faith, helps us to see things the right way. You know, all six days of the week, we're, we're very often tempted and tried and afflicted, and we learn to see things the wrong way. We lose sight of God's steadfast love for us, especially when we see the evil and the wickedness around us in this world. We watch the news, and we lose sight of the good news, and so the bad news overwhelms us and discourages us. And yet we come to church every Sunday morning, and sometimes in the evening we encourage each other to trust in God's steadfast love for us, to await and trust in his just judgment in the future that one day he will right every wrong in this world. We come together to worship. We teach each other to look upon and consider the end of the wicked and not just their temporary prosperity. And we see the blessed end of God's people and the end of the wicked contrasting. Think about this. Christ himself, our Lord, our Redeemer, what does the book of Acts say in chapter 2? He was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. He was crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Jesus underwent a lot of the same sufferings in a sense, and even more so, uh, of things like, like what Doeg did. Doeg, for money, that's really what he did it for, for prosperity, he betrayed God's people for money. Jesus was betrayed by Judas, one of, one of the twelve, for some pieces of silver. Jesus underwent that suffering for us, but Acts 2 also says that God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Because Christ has been raised from the dead, we too who believe in him will be raised from the dead as well. We will live to see God's glory and justice in this world. And this morning we confessed, recited the Apostles' Creed. You might remember that when we confessed in that recitation of the creed, we confess that we believe that the Lord Jesus Christ is now where? What is he doing right now? That he is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. What is he doing there as he's seated at God's right hand? He is ruling over all things for the sake of his church, for your sake and for mine. Right now, he is gathering and defending his church from all his enemies and hers. It doesn't always look like that's what he's doing, does it? That's when you, are, you and I are tempted to say, what on earth? You know, why doesn't God do something? We have to trust that Christ knows, the Lord knows what he's doing, and he has reserved a day for the punishment of the wicked in his time and in his way and his place. But he is gathering himself, his church. He himself is defending his church even now. We also confessed towards the end there of that creed that from there, from the right hand of God, from there he will come to judge the living and the dead. 
One day our blessed Redeemer, the Lord of glory, will make all things new and make all the wrongs right. You know, if you, if you read the book of Revelation, as I do sometimes, and scratch your head and say, yeah, I'm not sure I get all these visions and, and pictures, and, you know, that's what, that's what the whole book is about. One day Christ will return and make all things new and make all the wrongs right. And so what does the book of Revelation end by saying? Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these psalms, these ones that are maybe not as familiar as other ones. We thank you that David uh, put to words, put to song, words like this that teach us uh, what to do, how to respond in faith and trust in you and your steadfast love towards us in Christ. Uh, When we don't know what you're doing, when we don't understand the wickedness around us, when we feel overwhelmed and, and, and made to despair at times over the prosperity of the wicked. Give us grace to trust in you, to not take vengeance into our own hands, but to trust your just judgment upon the wicked and to trust even more your steadfast love and care for us in Christ at all times. We thank you that you are with us always, even to the end of the age, that you never leave us nor forsake us. And we thank you for your providential care for us and how you make all things, even even the unpleasant things, Uh, work together for our good to those who love you and are called according to your purpose through the gospel of Christ your son we do pray this morning that if anybody here does not yet know you through faith in Christ if they are yet still in their sins that you might even make today the day of their salvation that you would open their eyes to see Christ in the gospel and believe in him and have life in his name and we just pray all this in his name and for his glory amen